Uh, this morning we'll be together, we're almost to the end, we'll be together in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you'll find one and we'll be on page 144 in those Bibles, page 144. So I encourage you to turn there, and uh, after a brief introduction, we'll read the text uh, together. Um, have, have you ever had uh, one of those days, or even weeks, or months, for that matter, when it seems like things couldn't get any worse, and yet they did? Those are tough times. There's a famous kid's book I remember my parents reading to me growing up. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. That captures the idea well. It's those moments in life where one problem is unpleasant, but two is terrible, and three is completely overwhelming. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're having one of those kind of times. Well, Pastor Tad did a great job last week of showing us that David, in this section of Samuel, is right in the middle of a time like that. The text from last week, 1 Samuel 29 through the first part of chapter 30, could rightly be called David and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad time. It was a disastrous season for him. So because it's, it's summer and we're just coming back and some of you would have missed last week, here's a, here's a quick review. David was depleted from literally years of being hunted. His poster was on King Saul's most wanted list. And he wasn't going to get a trial. He was just going to be killed. And David seems to have lost hope that God would deliver him from Saul's murderous schemes. And so to get away from Saul, he went, he kind of did the unthinkable. He went to live among one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines. And eventually, when the Israelites and the Philistines finally squared off in yet another battle, neither side wanted David. He couldn't be trusted. His duplicitousness had caught up to him. The Philistines didn't want him fighting, and the Israelites didn't want him fighting. And so, all of that was unpleasant, even terrible. But as David got his no, you can't fight with us, then he headed home. And that's when things weren't just unpleasant and not just terrible. They were absolutely, completely devastating. Because when David and his men got back to their city, they found their homes destroyed. Their entire city burned to the ground. And worst of all, the wives and kids were gone. Imagine that. A smoldering, empty city. Now stay with me here if I can explain what happened. The, while the Philistines and the Israelites were off in battle together, another group, the Amalekites, 
took that moment to raid these cities and to burn them to the ground and capture the women and children. Most likely, they didn't kill them because they wanted to sell them as slaves. So David and his men are overcome with grief. Friends, where do you turn on those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? There's lots of choices. The options, frankly, are, are endless. Here's a few. Do you turn to alcohol? I don't mean a one glass, but I mean the abuse of alcohol as a, as a way of escape. Do you turn to Netflix? I don't, I don't mean one 30-minute show, but I mean a binge. Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of trying to escape into the, the television. Do you turn to porn? You go shopping. You eat and eat and eat. Is it drugs? Is it a vacation you can't afford? Do you escape away from church, not to be seen for weeks or even months? Or do you simply pull the covers over your head and not get out of bed? Where do you turn? On those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, what is your poison of choice, if you will? Well, those are all options available to you. But none of them work. None of them provide a lasting solution to the crises of life. David shows us that one solution. Would you look with me at verse 6, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Tad did such a great job of demonstrating last week what that means. It, it means that David turned back to God. He quite simply cast himself at the feet of his king. He threw himself on the grace and mercy and power and love and help and promises of God. And I love that little word, his. Did you catch that? His God. David cast himself not on the idea of God, not on his vast theology of God, not on a far distant, unhelpful, uninvolved deity. No, he cast himself on his God, personal God, a God he knew. Brothers and sisters, if you're in a time of hardship right now, this verse implores you to cast yourself on the Lord for strength. Christian, David shows us that it doesn't matter how far you've strayed, because if he can come back, you can too. 
Because God is a great God. And God always welcomes home his children. Amen? What a gift it is that we have a church family through which we can help each other be strengthened in the Lord. See, how did David know he could do this? Well, it's because in a previous time of despair, Nathan came to him, and the only other time that language is used in 1 Samuel, Nathan strengthened him in the Lord. And it's now here that David knew he could turn to the Lord himself. So church, I want to encourage you this morning to cast yourself on God's promises and God's goodness. Strengthen yourself by declaring that what God has promised, God will do. He's trustworthy. He will hold you eternally fast, even if the pathway from here to there is bumpy and rocky and there's some potholes in the road. And sometimes the car of life breaks down and you're stranded. But God will see you through. On David's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, he received supernatural strength from God to press on. And our task for this morning is to uncover what happened next. We'll consider the rest of chapter 30 this morning together. So would you look with me now at verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Elimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now, I might have just as well have read Swahili. Because what in the world does any of that mean? Well, let's take a moment and define what an ephod is. I know the reason you came today is for that. Uh, An ephod was basically a super symbolic tunic that the high priest in the Old Testament would wear. And it had a lot of bling on it. If you want to learn about that, then some other time turn to the book of Exodus. And Exodus chapter 28, almost the whole chapter, describes what this tunic was to look like. Now, remember that we are in the period of time in the Bible that's before Jesus came. And so everything in the Old Testament has a sense in which it was about pointing forward to Jesus coming. And even this this ephod, this tunic, was about that. You see, so often in the Old Testament, there there were physical objects and locations that were significant, not because in and of themselves they were important, but because they were helping to make physical and point forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. Now, we don't need that anymore. The reason why I'm not wearing an an ephod is because you don't need me to. The reason why you don't pick up an ephod and put it on to pray is because you don't need to. 
the ephod is obsolete. You see, we live on this side of the cross. Jesus came in person to reconcile sinners to God. And there could be nothing ever more physical than that. You see, the the ephod reminded the priest that he was coming into the presence of God. But Jesus is our high priest who forever leads us into the presence of God. Isn't that cool? Now, but here, we're, we're studying through 1 Samuel, so we need to consider its meaning even though we're on the other side of the cross. The ephod came before Jesus. It reminded people of the gift of leaders appearing before the God of the universe in prayer, seeking his direction. And David knew, he knew, I am in a mess that I cannot fix. I need God. And so he asked the priest to come and to bring the ephod. Now verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Now, not guitars and trumpets. It means the, the group who came and demolished their town. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He, that's God, answered him, pursue. For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and his 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So David sought God's direction, and God graciously told David what to do. What a wonderful thing. In a word, God's direction was pursue. Pursue. Go get your wives and your children back. Bring justice to the enemies of God's people. Pursue. And so David and his men set out. Now, I think it's easy for us to to read these words and not immerse ourselves into the story. Let's try not to do that today. Consider with me this simple fact. From the point where David had been told by the Philistines, you can't fight with us, to getting back to their home in Ziklag. These men had to travel some 60, 70, 75 miles. And they did it in only two, two and a half days. And when they got home, they found their city smoldering. And then immediately, David went to God in prayer. And God said, go. And those men who had already traveled 60, 70 miles in two, two and a half days, got up again. Now why? Well, their wives and kids are gone. They don't know that they will ever see them again. And God said, go. So they got up and went. Now, they made it a ways, 
But then, understandably, a third of these guys are just totally trashed. They can't go any further. Those of you who have hiked the Grand Canyon, you know what that feels like. You just can't go on. And so two-thirds of the men continued on the journey. They are searching for their families. Now remember this also. This is in the days before radar. There are no drones. There are no night vision goggles. There's no satellite images of the Amalekite camp. Quite simply, they don't know where they are. Humanly speaking, how would they find them? This is a nomadic traveling army of people that they're trying to seek and find. Humanly speaking, it's extremely unlikely they're going to find them. But David, David has cast himself upon the mercy of God. He knows at this point that he is wholly, utterly, completely dependent on God. And friend, when you reach that spot in life, things begin to line up. Look at me down at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. Yuck. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Well, swear to me by God that You will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Friends, you can't make this stuff up. This is incredible. An Egyptian slave who very much probably, likely, got captured on some other raid and now has been drug along in these battles. He gets sick, and he gets sick enough he can't handle his duties as a slave. And so what does the master do? He tosses him aside like a piece of garbage. He he leaves him to die in the wilderness. It's horrible. A sick slave is apparently thought of as worthless. And so the guy is just laying around waiting to die. But David and his men, just so happen to come across him. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of open wilderness, 
and they find one Egyptian slave laying on the ground. What are the chances of that? And he just so happens to have been a slave of an Amalekite. And he just so happens to have been a slave of an Amalekite who was at the town where David's family was taken. And it just so happens that he knows where his master went. It's astonishing. Friends, this is not coincidence. This is providence. And your lives and my lives, my life, I don't have more than one, your lives and my life are full of providences. David's posture of total dependence on God is bearing fruit. God provided a way. So let's see what happens next. Verse 16. When he had taken him down, behold, they, that's the Amalekites, they're spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of, the, of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight till the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him. And they said, this is David's spoil. So, David and his men are led by the slave, to the Amalekites. And they find them having an ancient Mardi Gras. They're, they're partying, they're drinking, they're dancing, they're enjoying the spoils of their war. And very likely, they're doing evil things to the innocent Israelites they captured. And so David and his men waited until daybreak, and they made their advance. And God delivered the Amalekites into David's hand. It was a decisive victory in which everything and everyone was rescued. Now, to get something of the unlikeliness of this victory, the, the narrator tells us something of the numbers. And it comes off rather weird, but it says... None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 men. What is that? Well, think about what that means. If none of them escaped except a little few, then that means there was a lot of Amalekites. And what was the number of soldiers David brought to this battle? 400. So, the number of Amalekites was enormous. The number of Israelite soldiers was the same as the tiny few that got away. Friends, this was a battle that should not 
have been one. And yet with God, all things are possible. He was massively outnumbered and his men were depleted before the fighting even started. But the sovereign God of the universe gave victory. Now, I wish you would tolerate a two-hour sermon because I could give you the, the entire backstory here that would show you the significance of this battle. But I won't do that to you. Let me tell you just a few little crumbs of information that have fallen to the ground. You see, way back in Exodus, so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in the story. The Israelites have escaped Egypt and they're making their way to the promised land when a pesky bunch of people come up behind them and engage them in battle. Guess who that was? The Amalekites. And God said to Israel as a result of that unprovoked attack, that the Amalekites would eventually be undone. Now, generations later, David is part of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, think about this. There's no Amalekite in the room today. You've never met an Amalekite. When you bought that 23andMe kit, and you did it, you didn't get 2% back Amalekite. Why? They're all gone. Why? Because, friend, when people come against God and God's people, they do not make it. I say this with all our modern sensibilities that are in many ways good about war. And yet, what this story in a tiny form does is points forward to the end when Jesus comes back. And you see, King Jesus doesn't take no for an answer. And so let this passage serve as a warning, a serious warning. That all who oppose God and God's people, all who declare themselves an enemy, will meet an unfortunate fate. Friend, don't mess with God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today's the day to repent, to turn to him, to cast yourself on his mercy like David did. And like many of us in the room here have. Depend on him. Now, a little bit earlier in the story, in, in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, King Saul was told to be part of this promise to end the Amalekites, but he disobeyed. And in his arrogance, he lied, and it cost him the kingdom. But David, David's faltered, yes, he's gone through a rough patch, but he comes back to God. He's not like Saul. He's obedient. 
Friends, the only way in which we are not like the sinful world around us is not that we don't sin, but it's that we repent and come back. That's it. Nothing better about us. We're like David. We're drawn back to a new state of dependency upon God. I hope if you need to do that today, you will. Now, everything we've looked at thus far today can be summarized in this simple sentence. God's victorious king is dependent upon and obedient to God. God's victorious king is dependent upon and obedient to God. Israel's chosen king, King Saul, tried to be independent of God and was disobedient. But the king God was raising up for his people, King David. David is dependent and obedient. Friends, we we know the difference in our own lives, don't we? When we are trying to live independently and when we're living dependently. There are apples and oranges. Now, we have to hit this quickly for time's sake because we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. But there's a little bit more to the rest of this chapter. See, the passage tells us more about the kind of king God has for his people. So if you would, look with me, please, at verse 20. Then... David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've captured, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. So, as the soldiers who fought, who risked their own lives, came back, came back with their families, came back with the livestock that had been stolen, came back with the spoils of the war, eventually they met back up with the 200, the 200 who couldn't press on. And some of those soldiers who fought didn't want to share with the guys who didn't fight. That's understandable, right? I risked my life while you lounged around. You don't work, you don't eat. You don't fight, you don't get the spoils of surviving the battle. It sounds exactly like something Saul would say. But watch how the king God has for his people responds. Verse 23. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. And with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. 
And who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Some of David's men were, were scoundrels who lived with what we might call a works and self-righteousness view of life. But David, David understood grace. God had graciously given them victory. You see, they didn't win this battle because they were the superior army or they had bigger and badder weapons or because there were more of them. They won because God came to their aid. It was God's victory. Believing our independent, self-driven efforts accomplish good things. Slowly sometimes, but inevitably, lead to idolatry. You see, what we think we accomplish on our own becomes what we bow down to. That's exactly what happened with these soldiers. They're looking around at these goats and sheep saying that we did this. Therefore, they are ours. But an awareness of God's grace, that the reality that our, what sustains our lives is the grace of God, that leads to worship, to humility, gratitude, to mercy, to generosity. And David knew that. David knew God gave them victory, so he knew the spoils belonged to God. And don't miss this. Because God is merciful and generous, God's king is merciful and generous. The men who couldn't press on were given the same as the men who did. God-given victories are not about our works. They're about God's grace. Friend, everything you succeed at is about God's grace. So not only is it true that God's victorious king is dependent and obedient... God's victorious king is also merciful and generous to his people. He's merciful and generous. The king God has for God's people shows mercy and generosity towards those who don't deserve it. What good news that is. Now, we won't read it for time's sake, but the rest of the chapter goes on to show the same thing again. After David got home, he sent more and more and more of what they brought back, not only to the soldiers, but to the leaders of all the little towns of Israel around this area. Because God gave the victory. He didn't cling to what God recovered. He shared it big-heartedly. Because that's what God's like. 
the people's king, King Saul, he takes and takes and takes. But the king God chooses for God's people, he gives and gives and gives. Because God's the ultimate giver. God's victorious king, bless you, is dependent upon and obedient to God. And he is merciful and generous to his people. That's what this passage means. Now one question before we end, how does that, how does this passage help us on Monday morning. Well, stick with me a few more minutes. Let me try to answer that question. David's not here to follow. We don't live in small towns with ethnic groups attacking each other. You're likely not going to go home to find your house burned to the ground and all of your stuff and your family taken. And we have and need no ephod. So what do we do with this text? It seems to me there's two dominant answers to that question. Number one, on one level, we can simply be encouraged by the grace and victory that God gave David. Because This is the same God who still reigns. You see, David didn't earn his way out of trouble. He threw himself at the mercy of God, pleading for his help. And what is universally always true is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friend, do you see that you need this week Another heaping serving of grace. Then come to God humbly, like David, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. David's dependency, his recognition that only God could sustain him, positioned him to receive from God's endless storehouse of grace. And that's exactly what we need, even if our circumstances are different. Brothers and sisters, David's example calls us, especially on those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, to admit to God and to each other, I can't. I am totally dependent on you. Please. You see, God's king recognizes his dependency on God's deliverance, and he delivers those who are dependent upon him. And so turn to King Jesus. Throw yourself on his mercy and grace today. That is an important application from this passage. But there's one more. I think there's one that's much more comprehensive. Because if, if we take the whole scope of the whole Bible, King David's primary function is 
to point forward to an even better king, a king who's perfect, a king who's always present, a king who didn't win merely one battle with one group of those opposing God, but rather conquered sin and death and the devil himself, a king victorious forever. The ultimate battle succeeded. If by God's grace, King David was merciful and generous, imagine how much more that king is. If David serves as a king, it's as a temporary king in order to point forward to the king who's far better and rules forever. David didn't perfectly obey God. He therefore couldn't stand in our place to resolve the hostility between God and sinners. But Jesus perfectly obeyed. So he can. And hear this carefully. I'm almost done. David generously gave food and livestock to people who didn't deserve it. But Jesus left heaven, became a man, depended on his father perfectly, and then gave not his stuff, he gave himself, his own life, that we might live with the Father through him. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says it this way, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Brothers and sisters, our generous and merciful King Jesus died for us. And through him, and by God's grace, we now share in his victory. May we live so thoroughly dependent upon and in worship to him that it's natural to trust him this week. No matter what we face, we turn in independence in dependence upon him, we find that he is sufficient. And may we share this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ generously with those we know who don't know him. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord God, for recording in your scriptures what God has done for us in Christ Thank you for reminding us this morning of these historical events and how they help us to see the realities of the spiritual truths all around us today. Thank you, God, that you've allowed us the privilege of hearing from you. And I pray now that my brothers and sisters who are having a series of terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days would cast themselves on your mercy and grace, that they come to their throne, your throne in prayer like David, that they come not through an ephod, but through Jesus, and have their burdens lifted today. 
And while I certainly can't promise the circumstances will change, the the experience of walking in the strength that God brings will in fact mean a, a whole different kind of experience. And Father, we pray that we would be people who help strengthen each other like Nathan did for David. And in many ways, most importantly, we pray that people here this morning who don't know Christ would turn to him and be saved. If they have remaining questions that they turn to people around them or come to me after the gathering, one of the other pastors, and get answers to those questions. And that God, when we leave, we would leave not merely full of your grace, but overflowing with that grace towards others this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has given us a